Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and a special guest. This week's guests include Barney Frank and Robbie Kaplan. On Defining Marriage, we'll trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 15. The Other Side of the Rainbow Cal Anderson spent his entire career in the Washington State Legislature working to expand equal rights for gays and lesbians. But marriage was never part of the plan. Cal was a one-man political powerhouse, even going back to his childhood in the early 60s as his middle school's meticulous student treasurer. After graduating, he served as the fiercely loyal secretary to Seattle City Councilwoman Jeanette Williams until he was drafted to serve in Vietnam. He could have spared himself the draft by coming out, but he was terrified of the potential repercussions. On balance, he decided, Vietnam would be safer than being openly gay. He earned two bronze stars and four commendations in the military. He returned to Seattle, finally came out, and settled into the relative calm of civil service in the offices of various politicians. His appointment to the state legislature was a bit of a fluke. When one representative quit to join the U.S. Foreign Service, there was a hasty reshuffling of roles, and Cal found himself nominated to fill an empty seat in 1987. The next year, he'd have to defend his new seat, so he hired a young paralegal named Ed Murray to manage the campaign. Like Cal, Ed was political even as a kid, student body president and an anti-apartheid organizer in the 1970s, and had come out of the closet after years of intense struggle. Raised in a Roman Catholic family with six siblings, religion dominated Ed's childhood, and for a time, he studied to become a priest. He struggled to reconcile his homosexuality with his faith, particularly at a time when gay role models were hard to come by. I didn't know anyone who was out professionally, he said. I didn't have a positive vision of what it was like to be in a long-term relationship. I didn't see any of them. That's why Cal was such a revelation. He was a gay man working in politics, successful and well-liked. Most importantly, with Vietnam behind him, he was unafraid to confront people with who he was. On one occasion, when colleagues announced that they needed a woman to fill a committee role, Cal asked, Will a sissy do? Another time, when liquor officials were harassing a gay bar for holding underwear nights, Cal stripped down to his own underwear and dared them to arrest him. Cal reminded Ed of his own political awakening around the age of five when the family gathered around the television to watch John F. Kennedy become the country's first Roman Catholic president. Cal meant to Ed what JFK had meant to the Murray family. When Cal Anderson ran, it was like, wow, someone like me can really do that, he told a reporter for the Seattle Met. Ed eagerly agreed to lead the campaign, and in 1988, Cal became the first openly gay man to be elected to the Washington state legislature. One of his top priorities was a non-discrimination bill that had languished since 1977. It would prove elusive for the rest of his career. Every single year, the bill would struggle through the legislature, and every year it would fail. But he never gave up. Marriage, on the other hand, was not even worth discussing. There was a group of people who wanted it, Ed recalled, but at that point it didn't seem feasible, and I don't know if Cal was particularly supportive of it. He was of a generation that had a pretty negative view of marriage. At that time, gay politicians had to focus on AIDS, and maybe they could take a look at a few basic civil rights protections if they were lucky. Ed found that out the hard way just after Cal passed away from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1995. In his last days, Cal recommended that Ed take his seat, and when Ed arrived in Olympia, it was just in time to find the legislature considering a Defense of Marriage Act. There was barely time to mourn his friend and mentor's passing. There was work to be done. 
Along with his colleagues, Ed managed to beat back Washington's Domobil, then sped home to Capitol Hill, Seattle's gay-ish ghetto, to meet some friends at QFC, Queer Fucking Central, and celebrate. What's going on in Olympia? Someone asked. We killed Doma, Ed announced. Eh, they replied. It would be almost a decade before eh was not the prevailing public attitude. The Seattle region is progressive, but socially and politically, eastern Washington is like the Deep South. In a state where a simple non-discrimination bill had languished since the Carter administration, nobody saw the point in even worrying about gay marriage. For example, when Cal once told a fellow legislator that non-discrimination protections were needed because he'd received death threats for being openly gay, his colleague responded, If you wouldn't go around bragging that you're a homosexual, maybe it wouldn't happen. So Ed turned his focus to the non-discrimination bill, and after years of lobbying, it passed in 2006. Cal's dream was finally realized, and Ed could now turn his attention to marriage. But he decided not to. Instead, he went for civil unions. Anything we try to do legislatively can be overturned by a vote of the people, he pointed out. If they passed a marriage bill in 2006, it would wind up on the ballot, and it would lose. Nobody else saw it that way. I was in the complete minority, he said. Every other gay leader in the state disagreed with me. Evan Wolfson came to town and called me spineless. Only Dan Savage and Governor Christine Gregoire supported the strategy I put out to do a series of bills so we could get members to vote for it. Essentially, Ed wanted to redefine the marriage equality playbook from one giant leap to a series of small steps. That would require training legislators to vote for marriage light and training voters to see that gay couples aren't as monstrous as they might have heard. And he wanted to do it in a matter of years rather than the decades that most of the country was taking to make that journey. Five more years passed. In that time, Ed was able to convince his colleagues to pass ever-expanding civil union bills, each time picking up a few more supporters. Public polling improved, businesses agreed to lend their support, religious coalitions grew more comfortable with the idea. And finally, with the heavy Democratic turnout of a presidential election looming, the time was right. Ed introduced SB 6239, the marriage bill, in the early days of 2012. I have waited 17 years to ask this body to consider marriage equality for gay and lesbian families, Murray announced before a committee. I realize the issue of marriage for our families is emotional and divisive. It touches what each of us holds most dear our families. He then moved aside as his partner, Michael, leaned into the microphone. Ed and I have been together for more than 20 years now, he said, and through much of our time together, I've tried to keep our political life separate from our private life. He took a deep breath. Today, I'm compelled to speak out about our relationship, he went on. He described the 56-year marriage of his parents, his dream of finding a lifelong partner of his own, finding strength and support in his relationship with Ed, and of the challenges of accommodating Ed's seemingly endless requests for potato-based dinners. But mostly, he talked about their commitment. Commitment is all about being there for each other in good times and in bad, he said. That has meant supporting each other, my support for Ed when his father was dying, Ed's support for me when my mother was seriously ill. It took a long time to get to this point in Washington. From the first non-discrimination bill in 1977, to Cal and Ed's first collaboration in 1988, to fighting the state DOMA in the 90s, it was never the right time to talk about the institution of marriage. It always had to wait for one more bill, one more vote, one more election, one more committee meeting. Now, finally, it was marriage's day. History will not be kind to you, Jennifer Roback Morse told the legislators. She'd come to testify against the bill, wearing the same trademark yellow sweater and rainbow scarf that she'd worn for nearly every public appearance over the last few years. Morse was a representative of the Ruth Institute, an anti-gay group that existed primarily to send Morse around the country to speak against gay couples at every opportunity. 
Whenever there was a trial or a hearing or a rally, she'd pop up in her bright yellow uniform. Redefining marriage redefines the way generations relate to one another. She scolded the legislators. It will take a full generation, a full thirty years or more, before the full effects of redefining marriage work themselves out. Yep, sure," replied Craig Pridemore, the committee chairman, moving on to listen to someone else. After the hearing was over, Michael and Ed headed up to Ed's office to unwind from the tension of public speaking. Testifying about their family was a new experience, unfamiliar and stressful, but ultimately necessary. Going into the hearing, they knew that there were already twenty-four supportive votes in the legislature. They would need to pick up just one more for it to pass. As they collected themselves in Ed's office, Mary Margaret Haugen poked her head in the door. A Democratic senator from Camano Island, Mary had the difficult task of representing a district that veered Republican, and she'd held her seat for a decade by carefully navigating between progressive and conservative positions. Short, white-haired, and grandmother to forty-five children. She had a warm, patient bearing that put anyone instantly at ease. She had also voted in favor of the State Defense of Marriage Act several years earlier. Ed had spoken to her about her vote then and learned that it had been a simple matter of conscience. She was a devout Christian, and so was much of her district. She simply didn't see that she had any other choice. He hadn't even bothered to ask her for a vote on the marriage bill this time. But that afternoon, she had an unexpectedly broad smile for Michael and Ed. She talked about the issue with her grandkids. She said, and she'd be the final vote that they needed. They couldn't believe it. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. She later explained, her voice choking with emotion. When I became a Christian, I decided that I had to try to live my life that He'd want us to live, and to try to treat people as we'd want to be treated. I could not say to someone else, "You cannot have what I have—a family. You cannot have the blessings of having someone to love. You cannot do that and be a Christian." So Mary Margaret had to vote for what Mary Margaret thought was right. She also knew better than anyone else what the implications of her decision would be. After a decade in office and a lifetime on Camano Island, she prided herself on knowing instinctually what her constituents expected of her. She knew that this stand would jeopardize her seat, and sure enough, the next year she was defeated by a margin of less than five percent. But she wouldn't have changed anything. Even years later, she still cries when thinking about being the crucial twenty-fifth vote. In some ways, she said, "I'm ashamed that I wasn't the first vote." My friends, Ed said, "Welcome to the other side of the rainbow." It was February thirteenth, the day before Valentine's Day, and he was introducing Washington Governor Christine Gregoire as she signed the marriage bill into law. The Capitol was absolutely packed with citizens. Ed spent the entire morning shaking hands, posing for photos, and trying not to feel too much disbelief that they had finally made it this far. It was rare that a simple bill signing would draw a crowd, but citizens had traveled from all over the state just to see the piece of paper signed. We have been on a long journey, Gregoire said. It started not in 2006 when we passed anti-discrimination. That was the culmination of years and Cal Anderson's hard work. Coming more than two decades after Cal's death, she said the marriage bill was the final step. It is the right step. We have finally said yes to marriage equality. She stepped over to a desk that had been set up in the rotunda in clear view of the members of the public who had come to witness the historic event. As the crowd watched, she signed her name one letter at a time, each letter with a different pen. Then turned around and handed the pens to a cluster of lawmakers behind her. Ed got the first pen and held it aloft as hundreds of people burst into screams of joy. It's nice to think that we're logical beasts, capable of thinking through complex issues and arriving objectively at a sensible conclusion. But the truth is that we're as ruled by emotion and prejudice as any other primitive animal. Sometimes our instincts reveal our nobler selves, as it was when Mary followed the call to noble self-sacrifice despite knowing the consequences.
and other times instinct tethers us to outdated assumptions. We're at our best when we're cooperating with that emotional, irrational, illogical side, rather than only fighting it or only obeying it. When it leads us or those around us astray, a patient hand is needed to gently guide us back to reason. Sometimes that correction takes years, so many years that some of us may not live long enough to see it completed. But with patience, Cal and then Ed were able to craft a roadmap for Washington. Bit by bit, year by year, partner by partner, they gently guided their colleagues to understand that marriage equality was simply the right thing to do. And from there, the emotional side could take over once again, nudging allies like Mary Margaret to value conscience over career, or previously held assumptions. Their decades of work had paid off in the legislature. Instantly, anti-gay groups began gathering signatures to put their definition of marriage on the ballot that November. Winning over the conscience of the legislature was a multi-decade effort. Now, Ed had 11 months to win over the conscience of the whole state. Oh, what a falling out there's been. Oh, dear. The honeymoon is over between me and the toaster oven. What? Oh, it was because you <laughs> reached into it a little too aggressively? I What? Are you victim-blaming? I think so. I am. It's your fault. Um, the toaster oven, I went in to get my waffle, and it struck back unprovoked. D- the waffle did? No, did, the did oven. Like, oh, oh, I see. My precious, beautiful oven. I can't believe it would harm you. I guess it's not a waffle fan. I guess not. That waffle was awful. Good God. All right. Well, how's, how's your hand now? Are you, are you recovered? Or, or do you still bear the scars of your, your battle with the kitchen implements? I think I'm going to have to get a cybernetic replacement, okay. which was my plan all along. Good, good. Just uh, make sure you have control over it, that it doesn't try to strangle me in the night. Oh, that's a real Halloween spook. <laughs> it is. A little too late, but it can, be a, it can be a Thanksgiving spook. One of those classic Thanksgiving spooks. Yes, yes. You know, it's a, it's a demon turkey, and it's haunted cranberries. Uh, what are we talking about? Anyway, let's let's dive into this chapter. Uh, this takes us to our neck of the woods, Seattle. Hooray! Um, yeah, and so uh, we're, we're getting close to, to modern times now, and people are really going for marriage. Uh, but why was this the right time to go for marriage? Well, I think I know someone who can answer that. Uh, when I first filed the gay rights bill in 1972, uh, marriage was pretty on the agenda. I think I know who that is. Yes, uh, my name is Barney Frank. I uh, was a member of the U.S. House from 1981 to 2013, and uh, I did a lot of work on LGBT issues. So why was marriage low on the agenda? Because it wasn't a case of, well, wouldn't it be nice if we get married? It was, hey, let's not be fired. Let's not have people be able to assault gay people with impunity. Let's be able to get jobs and not be, be, be living in fear that they're going to find out who we are and fire us from a security clearance job. Let's let's be able to go back and forth to the country and not get harassed. There are a whole range of issues. Let's be able to serve in the military. Frankly, those in the 80s were a lot more important on every level than marriage. But the climate on marriage had changed by the mid-2000s, and in part because of some court rulings. The other thing that changed, of course, was this constant movement in our favor of public opinion. And there, I think, uh, the key there is simply more and more of us have come out. I think the uh, the transformation, the very rapid transformation on this issue as socialists should go, uh, was thought about by uh, the fact that people came out and stopped fighting. The reality of same-sex marriage refuted all the negative predictions about it. The reality of who we are uh, it, it dissipated the prejudice. 
Yes, surprise, it's the very thing that Evan Wolfson had predicted way back in the 1980s. So the time was right, uh, and now all we needed was an opportunity to challenge marriage bans. You have kind of the perfect plaintiff and the perfect story to do it with. Who's that? Uh, my name is Roberta or Robbie. Everyone calls me Robbie Kaplan. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be the woman who represented uh, a lady by the name of Edie Windsor before the United States Supreme Court. And I have a new book out called Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. Podcast listeners might already know Edie Windsor's story. Uh, after more than 40 years together, her wife Thea passed away. And because the IRS didn't recognize their marriage, they hit Edie with a tax bill for more than a quarter million dollars. So she sued. Why was Edie the right plaintiff? I, you know, I actually think that her story in so, so many ways helped to move kind of the discourse forward. First of all, you have this incredibly charismatic, beautiful, uh, articulate, intelligent woman who at the time was, you know, 82 years old. Uh, you have the story of a truly, you know, epic love story where she and Thea truly lived the wedding vows and sickness and in health till death did they part in this incredibly romantic way that kind of spanned the history of gay and lesbian life over the 20th century, having met uh, as they did in uh, 1965. You have the incredible injustice of someone essentially paying a, a big tax uh, for being gay. The minute I heard Edie's story and met her, I, I was convinced immediately that, that it was really the perfect case and she was the perfect plaintiff to challenge this terrible law. This wasn't the first time Robbie had fought for equality. Uh, as a law clerk in the 1990s, she helped out with a case that legalized adoption in New York for same-sex couples. And she was still semi-closeted at the time she worked on that case. 1995, it was a very different world then. I was, you know, not that long out of the closet. I kind of first came out of the closet in 1991 in my third year of law school. You know, 1990, the early 1990s, AIDS was still a raging epidemic. And American society in general, and, and definitely the legal world in general, uh, had very different attitudes about gay people than they do today. So, you know, like many people, I think, in my shoes, I was out to some people. I was not out to others. I was certainly still dealing with my own internalized homophobia. That all changed, of course, in 1998, 1999, when I met my then future wife, Rachel Levine, who was, had been an activist for so many years and who was so out of the closet uh, that there was no possible way I could date Rachel seriously uh, or even be with her seriously if I wasn't going to be almost as out as she was. Look, I had always wanted to be married before Rachel. I'm probably much more, not probably, I'm definitely a more conventional person that way. And it had been, I'd asked Rachel a number of times and been turned down. I think when Rachel says that when she started to go to, to the marriages of our own gay and lesbian friends, it changed her view. Uh, that she realized how much homophobia she'd been holding inside her in being resentful when she went to the marriages of straight friends. And kind of that realization is what changed her mind. And uh, so actually she ended up proposing to me because I'd been turned down a bunch of times. She said, okay, you're right. You're, you know, she finally admitted, you're right. Let's, let's do it. I, this is kind of shows my very New York cynical point of view on things. But if you think about it, frankly, and all the cases show this from Windsor to Obergefell to I could give you another a dozen more, which is when does marriage matter the most? The truth is, excuse my expression, but marriage matters when shit happens, right? When bad stuff happens in life, when someone gets terribly ill, uh, when someone dies, when there's an accident, when a couple separates and, and you have to decide what to do with the kids, that's when marriage matters. And so, you know, I'm the kind of person that, that tries to plan for every contingency. <laughs> so marriage was very, very important to me, particularly when our, before our son was born. 
I asked Robbie what marriage means to her now that she'd argued for it before the Supreme Court. You know, for me, it's more about equality than marriage. I mean, marriage is important for me, but marriage is a choice. And as wonderful as it is to be married, it's hard to be married. So I, I don't take the view that anyone should or shouldn't get married. I totally understand people who decide it's not for them. Regardless of that, it, it is very clear to me as a lawyer that the way that our society recognizes the commitment between two people, the intimate connection and commitment between two people is through marriage. Whether you like that or not, it just happens to be the truth. And what separates gay people, obviously, from everyone else is who we choose choose to have that long-term love and commitment with. And so in order for society to fully recognize our equality as gay people, it had to recognize our equality in marriage. doesn't mean that every gay person has to get married or not get married, but it means that we have to have the choice to get married or we would never truly be equal. Wise words from Robbie Kaplan. Yes, she's a wise lady. But now your wisdom is to be put to the test in question time. Uh, what are your questions? Why do you get such a vindictive toaster oven? <laughs> I won't hear another harsh word about my precious toaster oven. Uh, if, if, if it comes to this, uh, I'll keep the toaster oven around and, and put you out of the house. Oh, why don't you marry it? Maybe I will. Maybe that's the next thing on the agenda. Toaster marriage. I'll just take it into the, into the marital bed and you can sleep on the sofa. No, on, on the kitchen counter. I'll put you on the kitchen counter and take the toaster oven into the bedroom. Yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing Ben Carson would say at a debate. It kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah. yeah. This is what's next. It wasn't it wasn't goats, it wasn't it wasn't uh incest, it was it was toaster ovens. That's not what his voice sounds like at all. So this Cal Anderson fellow, we live more or less across the street from Cal Anderson Park in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So I hear the name all the time, I see it, uh and I don't know anything about him. Who was this guy? Oh, it's a real shame that more people don't know him, that they just think it's it's something that a park is. Uh, he was this great guy who was uh, first openly gay legislator in, in Washington State, um, did a lot of really lovely work for LGBT community, particularly during the AIDS crisis, and uh, he was uh, a frequent fixture around Seattle. When I was talking to Ed Murray, the, the mayor of Seattle, for this book, we were talking about how great Cal Anderson's career had been, and Ed, who had worked with him since the 1980s, had this just sort of offhand remark where he was like, yeah, you know, people tend to talk about, you know, St. Cal, but the the real person was a lot more complicated than that. And then he left it at that. So I don't know. I don't know. Cal had a, had a some sort of checkered past. I do know. I did get a wonderful story about him taking his pants off at the cuff from, uh, from Daddy Jeff, the, the owner of the cuff. You talk a little bit about the Washington Liquor Control Board harassing gay bars in Seattle. And this is another thing that since we moved here, I've heard about that this used to go on quite a bit, like even well into the 2000s. What's the deal with that? Oh, you know, it's a problem in every state that these control boards were essentially set up uh, during or after prohibition is sort of like a, an attempt to uh, crack down on, on terrible intoxication, which, you know, it's a worthy goal, right? You know, make sure that people aren't being uh, serving alcohol to preschoolers. But uh, these liquor control boards tend to be fairly conservative. So when it comes to uh, places like the Eagle here in Seattle or the Cuff or wherever, often the values of the undercover inspectors do not match the values of the city in which they are doing their sting operations. So you get problems like, you know, in San Francisco, um, a DNA Lounge nearly got shut down because uh, just some random, I, I think the story is that some random uh, party goer at an event there happened to expose himself. And so because of that, the DNA Lounge now has to have security everywhere and kicking people out for, for getting the slightest bit sexy. Why is a liquor control board concerned about sexy time? I don't know. Sure. Well, weren't there parties started in Seattle like as recently as 
I don't know, five, six years ago, specifically to kind of protest the the treatment from liquor control boards? Yeah, that's the the tastefully named dick slap. Uh, They were... uh harassing folks that liquor control board was harassing folks at the um at the eagle here and uh cracking down on stuff like well you can't show porn on the screens it has to be still photographs of porn it can't be moving so like what does that have to do with your ability to sell vodka tonics i don't know but you know so uh kevin cower started this uh dj narc started this uh party called dick slap that was sort of a striking back and and just wanted to throw the raunchiest thing he possibly could while just flying under the just under what was legal it reminds me a bit of the strip clubs in san francisco where you can't buy alcohol if the performers take their bottoms off but you can have like a full buffet lunch (laughs) which seems like sort of a health code conflict of interest yeah well i mean maybe that's not true it's not like the performers are sitting in the buffet oh you pay extra for that <laughs> it's known as the egg salad job oh jesus but yeah i know like what is the connection between the bottomlessness and the buffet well it's it's more the so bottomlessness much- and uh and liquor right you can't get drunk if there's a genitalia oh. on offer uh but you can have a a, a, sum- <laughs> a sumptuous buffet is that what you're gonna say i think i was gonna say a sumptuous submarine sandwich which isn't necessarily funny anyway okay so when you were talking to Ed Murray, he said that throughout Cal's career, he was working to try to get this non-discrimination bill passed, but he wasn't particularly interested, he being Cal, in passing any kind of marriage legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed also said that there was a group of people who did want to pursue marriage. Who were they? I looked for those folks and couldn't find any evidence. Like, I look back through old newspapers, I looked through the gay press here in Seattle, so they must have had a super low profile because they really do not seem to have been captured by history, which is a real shame. Um, but they would have had to have been the furthest left of the lefties that were saying it's time for marriage equality back in the 80s when there were lots of other, as we heard from Barney Frank, the lots of other priorities on the agenda. And uh, the, the country was dead set against that idea. So I have a couple of questions about after the DOMA bill in Washington was struck down. Uh, first of all, you say everyone gathered at uh, QFC. So why did everyone gather at a grocery store? Oh, well, the, the QFC that we know today was just a grocery store. It was something very different back then. It was a different location, and they had, uh, you know, it was nice places to sit and coffee, and it was the place that you met your friends before you went out to go drinking. But it was still a grocery store. Yes. Okay. That's just an interesting concept to me. That uh, <laughs> the, 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 So the second question was, it was referred to as Queer Fucking Central? It was. Okay, so, like, the hub of the gay community was the grocery store? It wasn't just a grocery store. It was like a little market gathering place. There was seating, and it was a nice little, hey, stop by with your friends. Because it's in the middle of, like, all these bars and shops and neighborhoods and things. It was a grocery store and so much more. (laughs) All right, sure. I mean, I guess get your deli meats and then get your meat packed at the cuff. Sure. That was their slogan, actually. (laughs) So when marriage became a thing in Washington state, Ed Murray was advocating a gradual strategy mm-hmm. of civil unions with expanding privileges that uh, until the point at where it was sort of equivalent with marriage and then pushing for marriage. You say most of the leaders in the gay community were against that approach. So why is it that he was able to pursue it? Because he wanted to. I mean, he had enough power. He was a state legislator with who was fairly well regarded and had, he was, you know, important guy in the legislature so he believed in this strategy uh dan savage believed in that strategy did he have support within the washington legislature i mean early on when he was first pursuing it was this something that had broad support or did he have to no i wouldn't say it was broad support i mean that took a lot of work you know you you, you build up a coalition over like 
you know, a, a, literally like over over a decade or so of work. And sure, but why didn't other states pursue a similar strategy of starting with civil unions, expanding civil unions, getting both the legislature and the public comfortable with the idea of marriage-like gay relationships um, before pushing for full? marriage status. Some did, and it was real controversial. I mean, in, in California, for example, you see Carol Migdon was slowly pushing the uh, civil unions bills and adding rights year over year. But a lot of folks found that really controversial and off-putting because, you know, we're asking for little crumbs at a time. And it felt like we were saying, well, we don't deserve full equality, but maybe a little bit of equality. Sure, I definitely get that. Um, I just wonder if there isn't some wisdom to a more gradual approach. But, I mean, wouldn't you find it really unpalatable to put forth a bill that says that you're unequal, That you know, to say, okay, this is, this is all we need for now. This is all I want. This is all I deserve. No, it's not off-putting because you see the pieces and, and you see where it's all leading. But remember, Cleve Jones was saying that you have to ask for everything immediately. This is something that he said in a previous chapter of the show, that you can't just say, just a little, please. A final question. Okay. What is on the other side of the rainbow? Carelock, the land of the Care Bears. That is acceptable. I researched that heavily. Uh, it's in Olympia, actually. <laughs> it's not as appealing as it looked in the cartoon. So marriage has been passed in Washington, but will it be repealed by the voters? We'll never know. Or Actually, we will. You can find out next week. Or you could find out right now by going to Amazon and buying a copy of this thing. Yes, and if you enjoy the book on Amazon, please do leave a review there. That's very helpful. But that's not all in your bag of tricks. What else do you have for people? No, indeed. You can check out my other podcast, The Sewers of Paris, and also drop by my YouTube channel for some videos about LGBT issues and entertainment. Big thanks to everyone who talked to me for this episode. That's Barney Frank and, and the lovely Robbie Kaplan. Go buy her book. Uh, and until next time, folks, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. Over. <laughs>